Good morning. I'm excited today to be beginning a six-part sermon series based on the letter of James in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at this particular letter uh, over those weeks, and we'll begin this day with a reading from chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. I'll be using two commentaries by Earl Palmer and William Barclay as we explore this wonderful, wonderful letter of James. I have to say, though, that James does have a sort of precarious place in the canon of the New Testament. It was one of the last books that was added, and a thousand years after it was added, Martin Luther was still complaining about its inclusion. He called it the Epistle of Straw, didn't think it should be in there. Why is that? Because the letter of James emphasizes ethical living and the importance of doing good works. And some people, including Luther, felt that this undermined the main message that Paul was preaching, which was that we're saved by grace through faith and not by our good works. But I think this whole Paul-James dichotomy is unfair. In my mind, they do not contradict each other but they're simply talking about different things. Paul is talking theology. He's talking about our salvation. And it's true, we are saved solely by grace through faith. James is addressing a different question. Now that we're saved, how should we live? He's talking about ethics. So when he says that faith without works is dead, he just means that if our faith is alive, there's going to be evidence of that in our lives. We'll get to that in a later sermon. Some people don't like the letter because it's also really heavy on advice. And let's face it, we don't like advice that much, do we? Out of the 108 verses, 60 of them are advice. Now, for us to be willing to take advice, it takes two things. First of all, we have to be aware of a need, that we have a need, that we need help. You know, I've had a doctor say to me, the only time people listen to my advice is when they are in pain or afraid. That's the only time they take my advice. When we have enough pain, then we will listen. The other thing that is required to accept advice is that we must respect the stature and character of the advice giver. If someone is giving you gardening advice and their lawn is dead, you're probably not gonna take it, right? On the other hand, if you're at the driving range and you're working on your golf swing and Tiger Woods walks up, asks to give you a few tips, you'll probably take it, right? So it has to, has to do with the nature of the person who is offering it. Now this letter goes out to Christians during a very difficult time in the history of the church. It is written to the Christians who are dispersed from Jerusalem, the Aspera, and they're experiencing a great amount of persecution. 
And so they are really ready to hear advice because they are hurting. Why are they hurting? What's the difficulty, the problem? Two things. First of all, they're under persecution from the Roman emperor Nero. Remember Nero? Not a good guy. Remember Christians thrown to the lions? Gladiators mowing them down? That's all Nero and his stuff. And that was going on right at the time when this was being written. Secondly, there was a division in the early church in that there were some Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and then other Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. For a while, they just worshipped together in the synagogue side by side and there was no problem. But eventually, tension between those two groups arose and eventually, those Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah were expelled from the synagogue and they were kicked out and they began to suffer some persecution from their Jewish brothers and sisters. So the Christians were isolated and under stress, and they were desperately in need of some advice on how to handle the pressures of life. Now, Earl Palmer, in his commentary, says that the other reason this got into the New Testament was that it came from someone with clout. People don't like advice unless it comes from someone with a little bit of clout. There's some controversy about who the author of this book is. There are six Jameses listed in the New Testament, including two who were apostles. But most scholars believe that the author was James, the brother of Jesus, who later became the bishop of Jerusalem. While Jesus was alive, his family did not believe that he was the Messiah. I mean, that's not hard to understand, is it? Can you imagine, you know, trying to believe that your brother is the son of God? In fact, it says in John, even his brothers did not believe him. And so it was after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared to people, and Paul gives a list of the people that he appeared to, and one of the people on the list is James. So somehow after the resurrection of Jesus, James and his family became to be believers in the Messiahship of the Lord. And then in 62 AD, James was martyred by being thrown off the temple roof. So the letter being read is after his death, and he's a martyr, he's paid his dues, and he is a hero. And that's partly why it got into the New Testament. And so we're going to be looking at this over the next few weeks. So today, I want to just do one of the pieces of advice. It comes from the text from chapter 1, verse 2. My brothers and sisters... Whenever you face trials, that's parasmos, perils in English, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. What? Is there any part of you that wants to say, yeah, really? Whenever you experience trials, consider it nothing but joy? Would you say that to someone in a hospital room who's just found out they had cancer? Would you say it to someone whose spouse had died? To somebody who'd lost their job? Hey, I got a great Bible verse for you. James 1, 2. Whenever you face trials, count it all joy. You better get ready to duck if you say that. This is not a verse for that time. Oh, maybe Mother Teresa could say it. She probably would have the ability to get away with it. Why? Because she'd known so many trials. She knows hardship. 
Her life of service to those in peril has given her the right to say such things. And even if you have a right to say it, though, there's a time and a place. James is making this kind of statement that can only be heard in retrospect, in hindsight, never in the moment of pain. In the rearview mirror, we will see that the testing of our faith produces hupomone. That's a great word, a great Greek word. Hupomone. It means endurance, or sometimes it's pronounced steadfastness. It really just means the ability to hang in there. Hupomone. William Barclay says that it's not just the ability to bear things, but it's the ability to turn them into greatness and to glory, thus validating your faith, and it produces endurance. Hanging in there so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. You have to have clout to write that sentence. James knew what he was talking about. Stresses will produce the ability to make it through and to hang in there. You know when you're a mountaineer, you know when the greatest joy comes? Not when you've made it to the top, but when you've made it back to the parking lot. That's the greatest joy in mountaineering. You've been to the top and you've made it back. You've survived. You've endured. You've hung in there. James promises that with God's help, and even in these very difficult times of dual pandemics, we will have the ability to hang in there. Amen.